to horror queers we're talking killer car accidents we're talking self-administered haircuts and we're talking an all-time record for the f word in a single conversation and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking perverts in your schools ladies and gentlemen oh my god keep them away from me don't go to school there's perverts there i don't even know no you you can learn here they're teaching our children trace Uh, we are talking Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, a.k.a. Night Warning, y'all. Ooh, it's a mouthful. Question, which title do you prefer? Oh, definitely the first one. It's so Me much too. more iconic sounding. Yes. I'm a sucker for ri- hey, rhymes and alliteration. Oh, yeah. And this has both. And so it's a <laughs> it's a hot, hot sell for me. But it, it's a film I've never seen before this. I know. It was a, a new to us for both of us. I know. So as we continue our foray into Pride Month, I think we are on week three at this Correct. point. Yes. And we've got some real gay shit to talk about, everyone. And um, <laughs> I do want to preface it with if you've never seen this movie, um, the Blu-ray is difficult to track down, everybody. Uh, you can secure it from a website called Ronin Flicks. Uh, that's where I got mine. Or if you don't want to show up 30 bucks for it, which is understandable, it is uploaded on YouTube in uh, what looks to be an old VHS that has been watched about 50 times. <laughs> so what you're saying is it's glorious Technicolor and you can't see shit. Pretty much. And that actually is how I watched it. I, I ordered the blue after, like, well, honestly, I ordered the blue yesterday, so I, there's no way it was going to come in today. But, uh, so I got to experience this, like, and it's real, like, well, honestly, it, 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 it is a video nasty, so it, it really felt like I was watching a nasty version of this film, or a nastier version of this film. Yeah, a little grimy. <laughs> but before we get too far into the conversation, we do have two, two special guests today. Yes, I love a 4G. I do too. My favorites. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, they are the hosts of the award-nominated podcast Friday the 13th, which looks at horror in real life and in the media from a queer perspective. But, you know, I don't even know why they call themselves that, because they only talk about horror movies for 10 minutes per episode. (laughs) Please welcome (laughs) Maddie Zaradich and Andrew Huff. Hello. Joe, Trace, how you doing? Clearly someone's been reading our one bad review that we got, I see. <laughs> you know what? We can jump in that pool with you guys, though. We, we've had, we had one of our own that referred to us as clout chasers recently. Oh, Jesus. And yeah, it's fun. But you know what? I appreciated listening to that episode um, where you guys uh, discussed your reviews because you apparently do fight back at them good i like you it. know there's a little thing about maddie zaradich and that it's that i don't take shit from anybody especially <laughs> if i'm drinking whiskey and i believe that night i had had a bit and then andrew was just kind of cheering it on so it worked <laughs> <laughs> i'm not the doer i'm just the egging on her <laughs> Wait, was it an was it an apple podcast review or was it like was it like it's someone did someone tweet you and that's because I, I i do want to respond to as many apple podcast reviews as i can but i can't do that no, it was a can. facebook 
Oh. Yeah, that one was a Facebook review. And I mean, and, you know, what's what's cool about it, I'm sure, you know, you guys have experienced this too. You know, the, in general, the, the queer horror community and the entire community for that matter has really embraced us with open arms. And it's been a lot of fun to put our own little spin on things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the three people who have left us a bad review, like, you know, like we said in that episode, it's just sort of fun to look at. But, uh, you know, what they had to say was just so stupid in the first place. You could tell that they were just, I don't know. Fucking jealous, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> maybe that was it, I guess. Ours was, it was like, um, oh, if we didn't have Bloody Disgusting, we wouldn't be famous. Ugh. Famous. I'm sorry. That's not even the right word. Um, but we had a period last year where we did like a month of like lesser known films. And someone like was like, oh, we're just trying to raise our horror cred by covering these obscure movies. And it's like, okay, oh, come on. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you cover a film in French, it must mean that you're both a clout chaser as well as trying to raise your cred. Yes. <laughs> Only American films, please. <laughs> oh, my God. But anyway, on to brighter and happier things. Thank you all both so much for coming uh, to help us celebrate Pride Month. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us on. And um, I'm sad it took us this long for us all to get together, but we're, we're super happy to be with you. Nothing like a pandemic to bring people together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Pride is looking very different this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've got to make our own Pride. I'm painting my wall rainbow right now. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was my only artistic ability as a kid. I did everything rainbow because I just thought it looked pretty. I mean, it is. It's all the colors, right? Yeah, it is all the colors. No sign of things to come at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we are discussing Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And we've already discussed that we have had never seen this film before. Was this y'all's introduction to this film as well? Yes, I have definitely. And... To be honest, there's not a lot of films from this decade that I haven't seen at this point, so I was very surprised that I had not seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and same same for me. This was my first uh, my first foray into this little beauty, and you know what? It was fun. I had a good time with it. Yeah, it's definitely a quirky film. I can tell that it's an underseen film. Like, I'm not actually surprised that any of us had not encountered it before, because not only, you know, as Trace mentioned, it's hard to find, but I just get the impression that this is one of those things where people say, oh, it's a slasher, oh, it's a video nasty. And then when people watch it, they're like, actually, it's kind of a domestic drama with some Mm. mental illness and homophobia. And I think maybe it's not a lot of people's cup of tea. You know, when when it ended, because I, I did have a lot of fun with this movie, I will admit, I think that the middle of the film dragged a bit for me, but hmm. when it ended, and I, I gave it a three out of five on my letterbox, and I was like, I don't know if this is a good movie, but it's a fascinating movie, and mm-hmm. I think maybe give it a couple more watches, because I, I think what makes it more fascinating is, like, is the subjects that it deals with in the time period that it came out. But it's so, I don't want to use the phrase shoddily made. And it, it may just be that YouTube VHS clip that's coming to me. And I'm just like, Oh my God, it looks so shitty, but I don't know. Like there's just something so. Yeah. I mean, it's made by a guy who has a lot of television cred and I think that kind of shows like this looks like it could have been a made for TV movie. Yeah, but also some really interesting and and really sort of lovely explorations of mm-hmm. of what sexuality is and what identity is. Mm, and I, I think agree. that you know the the character of Billy, which you know we're going to talk a lot more about, of course, but this um, this cute little skinny you know kid who we don't know everything about because he's so hidden. 
you know, he really does become so tragic in so many ways because there's just so much that is actually complex about him when you really dig just a, even a little bit deep with him. It's really fascinating. It, it seems like it's going to be something on, on the surface and then it ends up being something different, I think. Well, that's why I'm actually really excited to talk about it because my goal with this conversation is to have me come out of this like liking the movie even more. Again, I don't just like yeah, this movie. Yeah. I actually really do like it. But it's just like production values and everything. I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of like the stepchild to an early lifetime movie, but with the wackiest yeah. ending ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the last like, the last fifteen minutes of this movie are insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is basically like, mother, will you join me in the shower? <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's just dive right in. I have a little bit on the production before we get into the release, um, but I, I really do think most of the discussion today is going to come out of the themes that this movie presents because there's a lot in here um, in this little ninety-three minute thing. So yeah, I mean, this this movie was released on November twentieth, nineteen eighty-one, originally. Basically, the three writers, uh, and the three writers are uh, Stephen Brimer, Boone Collins, and Alan J. Gluckman. I'm going to butcher that, but that's okay. <laughs> so they all wrote it, and they were basically driven by movies like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, like that psycho bitty subgenre that I hope all of us are familiar with. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Combining that with the slasher film. Apparently, it was ba- the genesis of the story was based on Brimer's own curiosity about his own biological parents because he was adopted. And so this is the story that they all decided <laughs> to like make for his origin. That's cool. <laughs> but what I do find interesting, though, so it is directed by William Asher. And Joe, you are right. He has a background in television. He directed a ton of I Love Lucy and Bewitched to the point where he was even married to Elizabeth Montgomery for a couple years. No, oh, wow. Yeah. They got divorced before this. They were divorced, I think, in 74. Um, so, like, right after Bewitched was done. But, yeah. And he also was famous for doing a lot of um, beach party movies in the 60s. Oh, Annette Big Tits. Mm. That's the nickname I have for Annette Funicello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but, 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 but. Asher was not actually the original director of this film. And you'll notice that because the opening scene was not directed by him. It was directed by Michael Miller. And Michael Miller had previously directed Jackson County Jail for Roger Corman. His cinematographer was none other than Jan de Bont, uh, who would famously go on to direct such classics like Speed and, and Speed, Speed 2 too. Cruise Control. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So was it his idea for the leeches then? <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, the car wreck. Basically, they're responsible for the car wreck. Yeah. Oh my god, the car wreck. Jesus that Christ. Is, that is like its own mini-movie. The car <laughs> wreck that literally never ends. It I... is one bad thing after another. First, it fucking, like, the brakes are gone. Then it fucking hits a tree. Then it goes off the mountain. Then it goes in the river. Then it blows up! Like, how much more could happen to the motherfucking car? And it's really kind of... Because the dad is dead immediately. And I really do love the shot of, like, his head bending backwards. It's very Mm. Final Destination too. But the mother is alive for this entire thing. Bless her. It's so upsetting. (laughs) Add insult to injury, then it catches on fire. Yeah, and then at the end... That little photograph just gently floats out into the river, and our movie really kicks off. You know, as it does. I'm constantly losing photos during accidents, and they just float down to the surface. (laughs) So, yeah, they filmed this scene, and then this is the weird thing. So, basically, the film's investors thought that Miller's production uh, pacing was too slow. (laughs) Okay, 
<laughs> maybe maybe the car crash went on too long for them, and they were like, "Let's move this along." <laughs> or it took him eight weeks to stage this. <laughs> Probably. I mean, again, it looks like a low budget film. I don't have budgetary information for this film, but oh my god, like it has to all go to the opening scene, right? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. So yeah, they fired his ass. Jan Demont in love with him, and uh, they brought in Asher and. It's kind of a weird choice, right? Like, why would you hire this guy known for I Love Lucy, Beach Party Movies, and Bewitched to direct this? I don't know. Like, oh, to be a fly on the wall. Like, okay, is it just (laughs) that they went for somebody who has, like, he can probably churn out content on time, on budget, and they maybe just thought, okay, well, this guy will be able to deliver the goods or were they just like, hmm, let's give this guy a feature and let's make it something completely outside of his comfort zone? Hey, so I'm going to date this episode because we're recording this like a month in advance. But this week, you know, they announced that Ruby Rose was leaving Batwoman. And mm. I do think a part of it has to do with like the hectic shooting schedule. I mean, on top of the injuries she sustained. But shooting TV is very different than shooting movies. It's longer hours and it's very, I'm going to say it's more efficient. It's very much, okay, we got to get this done and move on to the next episode. And so I'm wondering if they're thinking that Miller's pacing is too slow, so let's mm-hmm. bring in a TV guy because he knows how to get shit done quickly. Fair enough. That, that would make sense. You, you just have to be clippier in a show. There's, there's no other way around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this film was given a small regional release through Comworld Pictures under the title Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, uh, in several cities like Oregon. I'm sorry, Oregon's a state. In several <laughs> states. <laughs> And I'm sorry, did you say Com World or Com World? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was released in Salem uh, and Corvallis on November 20th, 1981. And also, I could not find any box office information for this film because I don't think it ever got a wide release. It had these like little Mm. mini releases throughout its entire lifetime because, as we'll get to it in a minute, it kind of had like a couple years in theaters. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, they expanded it in March of 1982 to St. Louis, Missouri, um, and Vancouver, British Columbia, which is yes. nowhere near Joe. <laughs> no, it's on the other <laughs> side of the country, as we've talked about numerous times. <laughs> Joe likes to int- uh, to teach me on Canadian geography, because I just think everything's right next to each other. They re-release it in January 1983 under the title Night Warning, um, first screening Ooh. it in the California cities of San Francisco and Santa Cruz, as well as Indianapolis, Indiana. Huh. Just... What? And can we just talk about how, like, literally neither of these titles really make a lot of sense for this movie? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah, no. they don't. Not a lick of She sense. neither bakes nor butchers. Well, she does and use I guess a she meat would tenderizer. <laughs> yeah, she kind of butchers. She kind of cooks a little bit. She's like, cooking, she's like cutting up a carrot at one point, too. And you're watching her and you're like, what the hell are you doing? I, maybe the butcher is with the meat mallet. Yeah. Mm, the yes. tenderizer. I guess. I don't think that's I don't think that's the definition of butchering, but that's cool. <laughs> You're tenderizing. Oh, tenderizer wait. Oh, yeah, God. tenderizer baker nightmare mate. See, it doesn't have the same ring to it. They knew that. <laughs> and that's just the other thing too, is I mean, why would night warning work? Like that actually know. makes I think I think that makes even less sense than butcher baker nightmare maker. Uh for night warning, that sounds far more like a quintessential slasher. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the SEO of 1981. They had to go shorter and more brief, and yeah. it doesn't matter. Just something that was easy to search yeah, for. Yeah, fair enough. In the Google of 1981. <laughs> that didn't exist. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know, do you have any awareness of Susan Tyrell as an actress? Because I was brand new to her, but she seemed like an actress with some kind of cred going into this. So I was wondering if maybe they were just setting all their hopes on her 
And I mean, apparently, uh, Jimmy McNichol was also an established property. Question mark. Uh, I just know her from Crybaby. I think that's the only thing that I really know her I'm going to blow your mind in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, I'm sorry. I, I'm on the same page. I didn't know her or Jimmy. I honestly didn't know any of these people except for Bill Paxton and maybe Julia Duffy. So, have y'all ever seen the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, The Chipmunk Adventure, where they go on a hot air balloon race with the Chipettes? Uh, can't say that I have. <laughs> oh, well then never mind. I will not be blowing y'all's minds tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's from the 80s. But anyway, the villain, the villains in that film are these two people named Klaus and Claudia. And she is the voice of Claudia. And when I found that out, it blew my fucking mind. Because I watched that movie so many times as a kid. It probably is terrible, but I loved it. That's hilarious. Yeah, I was never, I could never get into the chipmunks. It just like wasn't my thing. Like, that was just, like, the one cartoon I just couldn't get into. Out of all the cartoons. <laughs> it's much more of a Smurf kid. <laughs> I've never seen the Smurfs! Oh, it's 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 very innocent. <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen the Smurfs before? Never seen the Smurfs, no. Oh my god, it's well worth your time. It's fucked up. I did see that one drug propaganda video where they brought in, like, all the... Car- it was, like, the Ninja Turtles, the Smurfs, like, all these people. And it was, like, you could rent it at the library, but, like, basically the whole movie was, like, this kid, like, smoked weed. And all the, the cartoons that he used to watch came out of the TV and, like, were on a mission to help him get off of weed. God. <laughs> so, basically, we're back to Reefer Madness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they're using children's cartoons as propaganda. <laughs> did the chipmunks show them how to roll a joint? No. Anyway, <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean that's really all I have for the release. I mean, as I mentioned, in the in the UK, it was deemed a video nasty. And if you don't know what that means, listeners, um, it is a term to refer to a number of films distributed on video cassette that were criticized for their violent content by the press, social commentators, and various religious organizations. Yeah, so basically, the MPAA of Britain. Yeah, mm, yeah. So video nasty. I mean, like. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the practice, but you know, to their credit, this is a this is for eighty one. This is a pretty intense little film, right? Well, I mean, it's 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 fairly fucked up. There's a lot of there's a lot of foul language in it. You know that that to our ears in twenty twenty doesn't mm-hmm. you know doesn't matter of a wit. But back then, that would have been something you know fairly uh, clingy to the nineteen eighty one ear. I would say, especially especially to the British ear, for that matter. I'll be totally honest. I don't think that it's a video nasty because of the violence and everything. I think it's because of the subject matter combined yeah, exactly. with violence. Yeah, exactly. Well, because this comes out the same year as Friday the 13th Part 2. So this is like the slasher landscape we're looking at. I mean, honestly, it's it's really early in that slasher boom, you know? The British just don't like their gays. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, actually, that's a really important piece that we should touch on, because when this film is released in 81 as Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, and I'm totally going to give credit to Sam Wyman, because I read this in a column that he did with Brian Christopher called Let's Scare Brian to Death. If you think about Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker coming out in 1981, that's pre- AIDS crisis. It's sort of like when it was starting to be rumors that there was something happening in the queer community. When it comes out as Night Warning in 1983, that's actually when the AIDS crisis is starting to go into full bloom. So it was released into two very different time periods. And Mm. I'm wondering what the reception would have been like. Like, I almost wonder if that's part of the reason why they changed the marketing. I mean, it's possible. I mean, I'm sure those conversations were had. 
Because this is just such an odd film. Like, for people who haven't seen it, like, the reason that it's notorious is because it actually makes a police officer the villain of the film, and it makes the queers the sympathetic protagonists. Sure. Hmm, sounds like nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Sounds like real life. Apologies if we have any cop listeners. So, basically, I mean, that's really it. Um, I will say that the reason that Susan Tyrell was cast, uh, Brimer hand-selected her based on her performance in a movie called Fat City from 1972. Hmm. The other uh, co-writer, Gluckman, I'm going to pronounce it differently every time, uh, he really he met her on the set of a movie called The uh, Forbidden Zone from 1980. And yeah, basically, William Asher told her, um, don't hold back. Like, don't pull any stops. Go crazy. Like, we... Uh, when was Mommy Dearest? Was Mommy Dearest mid-80s? Ooh, I don't remember. It's 81. Same year! Oh, oh 81! Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that movie's a lot older than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, Mommy Dearest came out in September of 81, so obviously they, they wouldn't have that as a reference point. I mean, honestly, the reference point really was, like, Joan Crawford and whatever happened to Baby Jane, but um, he was like, I want you to have, like, a larger-than-life quality. And then, yeah, they got uh, Jimmy McNichol because he was a celebrity at the time. They were going to cast Paxton in that role, and they actually wanted him because he auditioned really well, but he wasn't a name at the time, so they replaced him with Jimmy McNichol and then moved him to the bully role. Hmm. Interesting. Which is interesting because Eddie doesn't really ever get paid off in this film. No, like yeah. That's a character that kind of comes to nothing. He disappears for the entire back half of the film. Yeah, I was waiting for his comeuppance. Bill Paxton's life could have been entirely different if he had played Billy. <laughs> I mean, he might he might still be with us right now. Rest in peace. God bless him. Miss Bill Paxton. Because Terminator is eighty four, so, and he's like one of like you know the thugs in that movie. But then of mm-hmm. course we get um, Aliens, like eighty six. So I guess luckily James Cameron found him. I was gonna say yeah. So basically, Jimmy McNichol needed to be found by James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, the only other bit of casting, Julia Duffy is Billy's girlfriend. She's in a lot of TV. Um, she's mostly known, though, for being on uh, Newhart, the second version of Bob Newhart's show. And she beat out actresses like Daryl Hannah and Ali Sheedy for this role. Yeah. Oh, Trace. You really think that she's known most for that? Wait, what do you not think Not Designing Women? Okay, but she was not a main character on Designing Women. She was the sister of one of the characters on Designing Women. Just saying, I think you're going to have a lot of people who are like, it's a sugar baker. Okay, guys, <laughs> if it's a sugar baker thing, by all means, come at me. <laughs> I will say it was interesting to see, and this is kind of like a minor part of the cat, like the, the crew, but the editor is the same editor as Tourist Trap, which it feels like there Tourist we go. Trap. It, it looks like, you're 100% yeah. right, because I, I actually have a blue of Tourist Trap, and it looks like the VHS cut of this movie. <laughs> and P.S., I love Tourist Trap. It's like one of my favorite from this era. Oh, it's it's super fun. Shocked that it's PG as well. Um, Also, Joe, he uh, edited Ghoulies. Yeah. I mean, these are all kind of slightly mean films too, right? Mm, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to say that they don't have a fondness for their characters, because I think they do. I actually think there's a surprising amount of empathy in this film, but they have an aura of meanness and cruelty and slight grossness. Like, this is a film that has a lot of incest overtones to it, which is Mm -hmm. not something that you usually get unless we're heading into cannibal realm. Yeah. Yeah, and like weird touching and like weird, a lot of shirtless moments, a Mm -hmm. lot of like it borders on, like, cringy, almost. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think between that and the queer stuff, that's probably why we got video nasty status with this one. I mean, even the way that Susan Tyrell dies, I mean, because it kind of looks like they're fucking when she dies. Oh, Mm. and she gives him a full on mouth kiss. Yeah. (laughs) And I love that this movie is all about the the, the queerness of it, but we never really see any queerness. Like we never Mm -hmm. see any of it. But the fact that it's even like, well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, so before I kick it over to you, Joe, with the plot, um, just in terms of reception, um, there were only three reviews of this of this on Rotten Tomatoes. All of them were fresh. Yeah. Letterbox score of 6.8 out of 10. But I did want to bring up, so I did check the Wikipedia just for other um, reviews. <laughs> uh, someone was sassy writing this shit. And I quote, Leonard Malton awarded the film his usual two and a half out of four stars, his most frequently used rating. Writing, explosive tour de force acting by Tyrell distinguishes this formula horror film. Variety called it a fine psychological horror film in which Tyrell gives a tour de force performance. Um, that was a frequently used God, phrase. God, I guess so. Jesus. <laughs> And then, uh, oh, actually, a more contemporary review, uh, Justin Stewart with Film Comment praised Asher for directing with a meat and potatoes efficiency, as he would with television, uh, and visual sense, letting the casting, risk-taking performances, and the twisted, quirky screenplay carry the day. Fair. I think one of the things that stands out to me the most is when you read the reviews for this film, people just latch on to Susan Tyrell and miss the whole fucking point of the movie like they're just so gobsmacked by her performance they're like oh yeah and there's also some queer shit happening off on the side i wonder if that was intentional though to be like oh if we give them this their eyes will be looking here and not paying attention to the queer shit but Mm -hmm. the queers will notice the queer shit it's possible. You know, I, I think that the direction that, that she got was, was pretty unfortunate. And, like, I'm not calling this movie, like, you know, a Mona Lisa here, but mm-hmm. I think that it would have been, I think it would have been really interesting if she would have played this role a little more subtle. Even just a little more would have helped, for God's sake. <laughs> so I, 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 think to, I think to direct her to just, you know, I think you said, you said, like, give it all you got, make it larger than life. Mm-hmm. I don't think it worked. I mean, it works. It works for you know the the way the film needs to move. But I almost think it's sad because I just I really am kind of drawn to some of the more like sounds so stupid saying this, but like some of the more like beautiful aspects of the film, like which, which I really think are worthy of of exploration. You know, well, I think some of the smaller moments really resonate, right? Like, yeah, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that she's a tragic figure and he is a tragic figure, and really like the movie has a villain. Like, the police officer is almost at odds with the madness that Anne Cheryl is delivering, because every time he's on screen, you're kind of thinking, well, what's she up to? Because she's mm. batshit. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that, that's all I really have. Joe, do you want to kick us off with a plot summary for um, anyone listening who did not watch this movie? Absolutely. And I will say, if people have not seen it, like, it's not the greatest look, but you can watch it on YouTube. So it's actually free... You definitely owe it to yourself to check it out. I have seen pictures of what the image on the Blu-ray looks like, and it looks, I mean, not fantastic, but it looks really, really, really good. <laughs> huh. Well, yeah, if you go on YouTube and look at the, there's somebody made like a modernized trailer out mm-hmm. of the Blu-ray footage, and you can just see how much the, the ah. quality has. Oh, wow. So I posted that on my Facebook thread for this because I was like, oh, this is a good trailer. The maker of that trailer is actually uh, one of our queer horror podcast brethren, Chris Moore, who co-hosts the Homos on Haunted Hill podcast. Oh, very cool. Oh, yeah. Nice work. We definitely know mm-hmm. him. Leave it to the gays to make everything just a little bit better. <laughs> it's what we do. Well, because exactly. like, my husband didn't watch this with me, and I was like, oh, wait, watch this trailer to make you want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then watch this fuzzy version. 
All right, well, let's dig into it. So, 14 years after the absolutely brutal death of his parents in a car accident. I know, I'm not going to beat this dead horse, but I just love, I love this. And I actually do think that this car crash is filmed very well. It it, it does Mm -hmm. feel like it's right out of a Final Destination film, but like, (laughs) it's mean. It is a mean fucking car crash. I, I don't think I've seen one like this since Final Destination 2. Well, and it's funny because we don't get any context for these people Mm -mm. so we're just led to believe like oh we're gonna go see grandma and grandpa without the child also which makes (laughs) weird no sense um but and then they just get brutalized like at one after another after another and she's screaming in the car and then it catches on fire and then explosion it's just like jesus christ people leave these guys alone have y'all ever seen that clip i don't know what movie it's from but it's where this woman keeps shooting a man and he it's like in slow motion he's screaming and she sh- keeps shooting him, and he's like, ah! And the death scene goes on for about three minutes long in slow motion as she keeps God. shooting him. That's what this is. But in that car sounds kind of like this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was funny, just because of the quality of the, the YouTube transfer, when they hit the back of the truck and he gets impaled, and essentially, I forgot that there was a little flag on the end. And I mistook it for blood, and I was like, that is the worst blood effect I've ever seen. (laughs) Just this orange blood ribbon hanging out of nowhere. (laughs) Yes. They did things differently in the 80s. (laughs) Right. All right, so we, we jump ahead 14 years after this terrible car accident, and we're introduced to Teenage Billy, played by Jimmy McNichol. Cutie pie. He's pretty cute. He's very twinky. He's a little too twinky for me. that's why he's amazing. Yeah, um, you've got your taste, and the rest of us have ours. I'm sorry. This is hilarious, because this is exactly how it goes on our podcast. Daddy is definitely (laughs) the twink guy, and I am definitely the daddy guy. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm all over Billy and this motherfucker. The whole thing. Oh, He is shirtless all the fucking time. Yeah, bring it on. His hair, because he he looks like he would be in an 80s gay porn movie. Like like, Mm, like the mm -hmm. 80s version of Bellamy, you know? Mm -hmm. So Bellamy. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, he'd be... (laughs) Sure, yes, exactly. Yeah, they've been in business forever. No, uh, my husband's the same way. My husband likes white trash-looking guys, and so it's just very different. I don't know what that says about me, but it's like very... Yeah, Trace, what are you saying about yourself right now? What's like going fucking, on? Like fucking like buzz cut, wife beater, like shirts, like preferably stains on them somewhere. Wow. Well, so was Tiger King just like a, a yes. big porn for him? <laughs> yes, it was. He watched all that in like a day. Oh, wow, that that's a mood. <laughs> Okay, so our introduction to Billy is that he is awoken by his Aunt Cheryl, played by Susan Tyrell, and she is both too focused on manners and simultaneously in love with him. (laughs) It's a weird combination. The intimate touching is just clear right from the beginning as soon as the first finger hits the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, the, the way that the whole shot is framed, too, is entirely sexual. Like, you know, you see this long body, this, you know, this fit body that is like bathed in light and is covered you know very romanesque and somebody comes in and just starts to touch it i mean it's 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 meant to be sexual and you can tell that right from the outset i mean god just listening to you describe it was like ooh, do we need a moment well, i need a welcome fan. uh you know welcome to my my side gig which is phone sex so you know. <laughs> ooh. well and one of her first lines is i'm going to be your date tomorrow night so uh-huh. foreshadowing well, and she's doing it in such a way, it's like a baby talk, whisper, like sex voice. Yeah. 
it is deeply uncomfortable and you're like oh are they lovers and it's an older woman younger man kind of thing and then it's like nope this is his aunt still okay well and it's one thing that it's creepy that it's his aunt but then you know later down the movie when we find out something Mm -hmm. it's even worse oh (laughs) this movie has no shortage of reveals yeah it's hiding reveals at every turn (laughs) so uh it turns out that billy is a basketball star and he is dating good girl julie played by julia duffy she is a amateur photographer snooze factory she's so boring (laughs) (laughs) this is one of those like a ditch the chicken get on the dick kind of i don't know she she's so sweet she she reminded me a lot of a lot of girls from my own high school to be completely honest with you like there there's something um i don't know Something sweet about her. I think it's when her confrontation, when she gets hit with a meat mallet, um, like when she kind of like snaps <laughs> back at her at Susan Tyrell. But I mean, that's the thing though, you know, you have Billy as your essential final girl in this movie. So then you have Julie relegated to the boring boyfriend, like the supportive boyfriend throughout this entire sure. movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and also she's pretty much indestructible in yes. this movie. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Totally. I thought she was dead eight times. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> i kept point. turning to my husband and being like well she's dead and then he's like oh she's back again <laughs> jason Voorhees of this movie i'm still right? here <laughs> don't worry billy i'm still around <laughs> uh okay so she's taking pictures and this is also when we meet his disgruntled homophobic teammate eddie played by bill paxton there's some weird sexual tension here but it's also just very clear that he's jealous of billy's performance and he thinks the easiest way to take him down is to call him gay queer hands yeah and i also think that he's jealous of his relationship with the coach mm-hmm. oh yeah sure. for sure that 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 yes i agree and I, I do hate that the movie doesn't get to really explore that more but again given the time period it makes sense you can make a whole movie out of this, like like now. Honestly, even like get rid of the aunt, or, I'm sorry, aunt mother person, and just have it be about that. Yeah, like the cop who fixates on the teen believing that he's part of this gay love triangle, but mm-hmm. actually he's just like an unsuspecting, mm. he's kind of caught up in it. Yeah, but even like, oh, like if maybe there, well, no, 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 no. I'm going to rewind that back because if I say it, then it's going to make the coach, the coach sound, sound creepy. Predatory, yep, exactly. Yeah. That, I think, is one of the things that should be said right off the top. You keep waiting for this film to go there. You keep waiting for this coach, Tom Landers, played by Steve Easton, to make a move on Billy. Uh And it never fucking happens. And it's so fucking refreshing. Fun connection. He is actually also in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. In, like, a small role as a cop, but he's in that movie. I mean, he's he's also in, like, 8,000 things. He's Mm -hmm. in so much shit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he's very prolific. It was nice, though, to see an early 80s movie with gay characters that were not predatory, that were yes. not, like, stereotypical, like, flaming gays, or, you know, it was just, like, it was very odd to me that I was like, oh, this is interesting. It was nice to have a father figure that was mm-hmm. gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because Billy doesn't have one. He literally has no men in his life. Yeah, except you know, for... a hilarious plot point. The coach. Well, and that's why, and we'll get, when we get into discussion, like heavy discussions, we'll talk about it, but that's why I kind of, at first I was bothered that we don't really get an answer as to Billy's sexuality, but I kind of, I mean, maybe I'll disagree, but I kind of like it because I feel like if if the film was like, oh, he's gay, well, then it's like, oh, well, he had an overbearing mother and his only father figure was this gay man, therefore, Mm -hmm. of course he turned out gay. Yeah. 
I, I think I think it's it's really delightful how the film just doesn't answer it for you. Yeah. And 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 it allows you to explore that on your own and it allows him to explore it too. And it's very clear, you know, by the end of the film, I don't think that Billy even knows. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's also refreshing too. Which I think is such a fantastic queer reading because I could totally see oblivious straight audience is going like oh no no you're wrong we've got that coda that says that he goes off with the girlfriend to the yeah. university of denver and you're like sure sweetie i also even like the presentation of these gay characters like one of them is a basketball coach and one of them is a tv repairman yeah, yeah. these are not glamorous jobs these are not beefcake models these look like regular people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting interesting i mean they're giving me sexy 80s porn vibes because i'm like <laughs> yeah repair yeah you know keep me late at the gym but that's just falcon videos doing their damage on especially me. Wow, in that youtube wow. transfer oh god yeah right it's like suggested videos to watch after butcher baker nightmare <laughs> like here's a bell and me video and then here's a falcon video uh, you seem to like shirtless young boys okay moving on moving on So uh, that night, Aunt Cheryl is less than enthused to learn that Billy is considering uh, he's going to chase after a full basketball scholarship to said University of Denver. And she immediately emotionally blackmails him, talks about all the sacrifices that she's made to raise him, and she demands that he stick around. And she says this fantastic line, college is for rich kids and people with brains you wouldn't fit in. <laughs> wow. Fuck you, Aunt Cheryl. <laughs> it's actually kind of a miracle, though, that he's as, like, quote-unquote normal as he is in this movie if she's been raising him that way her his entire life. Yeah. True. I think there's every indication that she starts to go off the deep end after the murder, but, I mean, she's not well even before. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not something you say to someone that you love because this is going to do some psychological damage on them. Well, for a woman that sleeps next to a lit candle... Oh my god, what was that? (laughs) It's Britney Spears! Oh my god. There were just so many candles that were lit in this movie, and I was like, this is a major fire hazard Candelabra. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's a wonder this movie didn't end with, like, someone accidentally burning down the fucking house, right? Right? It would have fit. It 100% would have fit. There's your night warning right there. Don't sleep with lit candles. (laughs) Thank you. So the next day, which is Billy's birthday, Aunt Cheryl apologizes, and then she puts on the moves on TV repairman Phil Brody. And when he refuses her advances, she stabs him to death in front of her quote-unquote nephew. And this, of course, happens just as nosy neighbor Margie, Marsha Lewis, and her husband arrive to celebrate Billy's birthday. So they walk into the kitchen and they discover Cheryl. Aunt Cheryl is covered in blood and Billy is holding the knife. Can I just say that this part when she goes to get enraptured in the arms of her neighbor and she leaves those bloody handprints on that bright white shirt i was like you son of a bitch i mean we've got that and then we've also got her with her tits out covered in blood yeah i took that as i need to prove that he was trying to rape me i think so too Uh, okay it really goes from zero to a hundred quickly you know because she comes on to him really strongly And then the Mm -hmm. second that he says no, she just loses it. And then bam, 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 stabby, stabby, stabby. It almost seems like she's trying to prove to Margie, 
because there's a scene earlier where Margie says like, you know, oh, Billy's going to be moving out soon. You could date. You haven't dated someone in 14 years. And it almost seems like this is Aunt Cheryl trying to prove that if she wanted to, she could fuck somebody. But instead, she puts the moves on this gay guy, and then she just brutally murders him. And you're like, oh, she's got no game, and also she's a little bit messed up in the head. Mm. (laughs) Also, the murder scene. Like, when she stabs him, the camera lingers on these knife wounds. Like, the knife Mm. going in and puncturing this guy. It's slow-mos, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's hardcore. So enter our nemesis, our adversary, our villain with the capital V, Detective Carlson, played by Bo Stevenson. He immediately zeroes in on Billy. He's having none of this attempted rape thing that Aunt Cheryl is trying to put down. And he immediately decides that Billy is actually secretly gay. And he delivers one of my favorite lines in the film to Cheryl. Um, you said he touched your booby. (laughs) (laughs) see my favorite line was when she goes he tried to rape me and he just goes i disagree (laughs) my favorite line is when uh near the end when aunt cheryl's going after julie and she says come here slut oh (laughs) Oh so fucking funny julie gets called a slut so many times in this movie it's so upsetting (laughs) come here slut there's drinking games to be had around the f word and slut that's what the movie should have been called. Come here, slut. Come here, that slut. Been, that would have been a great <laughs> fucking title. I'd see that movie. <laughs> the next day, Billy discovers that Aunt Cheryl is randomly burning papers when he comes home early from school. And he ventures into the attic to discover a box full of memorabilia, including pictures of an attractive man named Chuck, who Aunt Cheryl says dated his deceased mother and then immediately moves on. Sorry, I, I, I'm like... I was trying to piece this together because at the time, I, I, you, don't, I, you don't even think that Chuck is like a deal. That's almost why I want to watch the movie again, like with the knowledge, with the knowledge of where it's going, so I can pay attention to things like that better. Well, even like, why does she randomly at this point decide to start burning archival footage that might link her to previous murders? Like, is it just because a cop arrived and she realized, oh wow, I probably shouldn't leave all this evidence that I may be connected to the body in the cellar? Maybe, maybe maybe because like it's the first time a cop's been around her property yeah it's just very odd like as soon as the murder is committed aunt cheryl goes off the deep end and she just starts acting irrationally for the rest of the film Mm -hmm. so detective carlson then shows up at basketball practice and you initially think that he's just there to kind of shit talk billy and get like more background evidence and instead he just walks up to coach tom and just goes so you were fucking this guy that just turned up dead and you're like wait what yeah where did this <laughs> yeah, come that's from? Yeah. i was like wait a minute what's going on <laughs> and i kind of had to pause and be like wait the tv repairman and the coach are lovers in 1981 because yes. he doesn't use those words exactly like and one of the only subtle things in this movie he's very subtle about how he tells him that he knows what he was doing hmm. and it took me a second to realize, yeah, like, exactly what he was insinuating. And then, of course, we get <laughs> when he's like later, is it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a fag to be raping your aunt. <laughs> yeah, a trigger warning or sorry, content warning for anybody who is put off by the gay slur F word. This film has it in spades. In spades. Yeah. It is also revealed that Aunt C has a secret shrine to Chuck hidden in the basement that she just kind of routinely goes down and talks to. Full on Helga Pataki 
Arnold bubblegum shrine. <laughs> Did it feel weird that she had to break through the like the wall more to get in there? <laughs> yeah. I was like, do you not come down here regularly? No, or... I, I, I don't that's think what she I does. think is that it's like, oh, okay, I'm in need of spiritual guidance from the guy that I murdered back in the day, but I had boxed him up. But now that there's a police officer poking around, I guess I should tear down that wall. Mm. But once again, there's already candles lit down there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> those are everlasting candles they've been burning since the murder years before behind the candelabra part one <laughs> butcher baker nightmare maker edition oh jesus at school billy and eddie get into a fight when eddie once again questions his sexuality and they get into a little bit of a spat this is the last we will see of eddie he is gone after this scene yeah okay sure Detective Carlson then arrives at the house to ask Billy about his relationship with the coach and with Phil. So this is what I love about this film, is that Detective Carlson is such a fucking homophobic asshole that he sees there's a queer association with the man who was murdered. I can tie him to this basketball coach, and the basketball coach works with this kid so therefore there must be some kind of love triangle going on and you're like wait what as some of our biggest detractors love to say it's a bit of a reach it's a touch of a fucking reach (laughs) holy cow and and i just love that carlson is so single-minded about this idea he literally he decides that this is what has happened and then he just pursues it for the rest of the film like actively telling other people to shut the fuck up when they're bringing him evidence <laughs> like mm. no no thank you yeah because we have our other um character detective that is trying to prove otherwise yeah. and he just won't hear it <laughs> yeah yeah sergeant uh What's his name? Sergeant Cook is yeah. off there, like, doing the actual grunt work of trying to solve this case, and he's turning up all kinds of clues, and Carlson is just like, mm, no, I'm going to need you to shut up. Yeah, and Cook has that line, too, where it's like, it really puts a, a dent in your whole, like, fag theory. And I'm like, yep, yes, yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so Carlson leaves, and this is a fun one. So as he's leaving, he offers Billy tips on how to make a good basketball shot, which Dude. is to keep your wrist limp. Flashbacks. Wow. I had that written down too. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I had like, flashbacks to my childhood, but yeah, like I used to hold my hand on my side, like with my hand, like flat down. And I remember my mom told me one day, she like, she kept slapping my hand and she was like, don't do that. Gay men hold their hands like that. Yeah. Oh wow. So like wa- watching, watching, like hearing him go, "Oh, your wrist, keep it limp, like shouldn't be too difficult for you." I was just like, "Oh, flashbacks." Yep. I feel like there's a lot of issues around queers and sports. Like I had a similar issue where I think in PE back in grade school, there were girls who made fun of the way that I threw a frisbee, and they were like, "Wow, the way you throw a frisbee is so gay." Mm. I'm like, I'm <laughs> it's a sorry. fucking frisbee. What the fuck do you want, bitch? This is a queer sport, people. Come on. Well, this movie does feature one of my worst fears, and that's shirts and skins. Oh, Oh, Jesus. Shirts and skins was the goddamn worst. Wait, what is that? Shirts and skins is when when you um when you're playing basketball in gym, right? And Mm -hmm. instead of like having like two different colored jerseys, the coach or you know, the gym teacher, whoever will say, Okay, you guys you guys wear a shirt, you guys don't wear a shirt. Oh when you grow up as like like a fat kid, like you know, like I did. Mm-hmm. it's like the most terrifying thing in the world to like mm-hmm. not only take your shirt off in front of the other boys, but then also on top of it, run around and jump up and down. It's like the worst thing in the world. So I'm thinking of like, oh, what if you get a boner? But that also is terrifying. 
Oh, that that's more in the shower, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, we didn't have I mean, we had a shower room, but like in PE, like we never had to go to the shower. So we just went back to class smelly, I guess. Oh, we were we were we were required to. It's it's sort of it's sort of uh strange looking back at it now, yeah. Yeah. We had shower stalls at least. Like it wasn't like a big open room like it's depicted, but lucky. Yeah, we just had the the open shower room where it was like poles with eight shower heads on them and it was like, Okay, lather up. I have never been in a community shower like that, like ever in my life. It's um if you're having like body dysmorphia or if you are worried about being outed, it's basically, yeah, it's a nightmare maker of its own. Cause yeah, truly. Only bad things can come from that situation. So back to the film. This is immediately followed. So this fantastic scene where Carlson basically tells him, okay, you've got a limp wrist, should be easy for you. He then goes inside, has dinner, and tells his aunt what Carlson has told him. And when she finds out that the guy she killed, as well as his coach, are homosexuals, she says, oh, those are very, very sick individuals. Do you know that homosexuals are very, very sick? (laughs) That's my impression. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. I feel like you probably could have gone further. Like, if you had have had Asher as a director, he might have said, you know, just really go. Really go for it. Yeah, really go for it. (laughs) This is where we go to the precinct, and we find out that this is another little tiny element of the film that I really enjoy. Carlson is not popular with his colleagues. It's not like he's the star of this precinct. Like, his colleagues actively look like they think he's an idiot. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I would agree with you. Yeah, it, n- nothing seems harmonious, and, and that, that sort of plays out throughout the film. And it's also interesting to say that, like, he's, like, a decorated man with, like, a purple heart Mm -hmm. and, like, all this stuff. Like, he should be, like, a noble character. But in this, they kind of paint him just as, like, this complete asshole. Which makes the movie so, all the more fascinating to me, you know? Like, like this picture of American perfection, you know, Mm -hmm. event. And then, like, he's just despicable. Well, and even, so at this point, this is where Coach Tom comes in and Carlson suggests that he molested two boys the night before and infers that the coach absolutely has to quit his job. But what I loved is the set detail behind the coach. You can actually see that Carlson has like bull's horn and it looks like accoutrement for somebody who was working at the rodeo or they were very (laughs) much steeped in Western fare. And you're just like, oh, I get it. This is a mockery of like a quintessential cowboy, like an American mythos. This guy who is out there serving the public, he's protecting people from the fags, and he's actually the villain of this movie. In in this moment too, I couldn't tell. It's when he when uh, the coach goes to see Carlson at his office, but he he refers to Billy. As, sorry, Carlson refers to Billy as the coach's butt boy or fuck yeah. boy. I couldn't I couldn't tell. I what heard he said. sounded like fuck boy to me. Okay, okay, interesting. I mean, they're both absolutely terrible. Right? Like, can you imagine talking about a seventeen year old boy like that? That's the thing. The movie makes a point to be like he's seventeen right now. He is not even legally an adult yet. Yeah, like he literally just turned 17 because we saw his birthday the day Mm -hmm. before. Yeah. It's madness. This guy is such a fucking asshole. And, you know, not only is he an asshole, but, you know, the the entire bravado, it's almost like, you know, the the stuff you're talking about in the office with the bullhorn and everything else. It's all so put on. Yeah. It's all like his own little costume. His brutality never even really shows itself. He's just an asshole. Mm -hmm. Even when he tries to be brutal... Like, especially in the end, he fails utterly. You know what I mean? He's completely ineffectual. 
Completely. Totally ineffectual and clearly hiding something of his own. And yeah. that's something that I wish the film would have explored. And we could talk about this more, but I wish the film would have explored that a bit more. You know, I, I like my villains to be a little more, you know, grounded. well, grounded, but also like Shakespearean. You know, there's only there's only one villain in Shakespeare that just does it because he's an asshole. And that's a Gloucester. But every other villain, there's a reason why there's something happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And for, for this guy, he's just a dick. Which yeah. is fine, like whatever, you know, it's just a little film and but all, but it would have been more interesting. But but that's the thing though, right? Like he, it's just because he hates gay people so much, and that, that's, I don't want to say it's always fascinated me about homophobes, but it's just like, what must be going on in your life to make you hate a group of people so much and to go out of your way like this to like ruin their lives? It's such a weird fixation in that group of people, and I just don't understand it. That's well, always coming from a place of fear, right? racism sexism homophobia they're all about the fear of the other Mm -hmm. but that's as far as i can go with it because i legitimately do not understand i don't know why somebody sees somebody who's different from them and is just Mm -hmm. like oh wow i'm fucking scared of you and i'm going to lash out and try to kill you i think i think it's fear of, of the power structure being offended and and if the the power structure that someone relies on looks like it could be faulty, then you know that person will do all that they can to fight right back on it. And I think that you find with you know police brutality against you know queer people in general from mm-hmm. you know from the the I don't know maybe the, the early thirties on it's it's all sort of the same when it when it's documented. It's going against communities usually that mm-hmm. they find are are going against that very structure. You know, queer people don't like police. There's there's plenty of reasons why. There's reasons why we don't want police in our parades. Yeah. And, you know, you, you see that just sort of borne out in this film, too. You know what? I'm actually super glad that you raised that because I was I was looking for an opportunity to discuss how prescient this film feels in that regard. This is a film that next year turns 40. Mm. And I was looking at it and the way that Carlson reacts to the queer community, his just unabashed hatred and fear of it. And all I could think of was, yep, last year when we were actually having a pride and a pride parade here in Toronto, there has been so many discussions about whether or not to allow police to march in the parade and what is their role in protecting the crowd sure and it all stems from this incredibly toxic relationship and and i'm going to go back to what trey said like we're not talking necessarily about all police officers but there is there's a history of challenging relationships between the queer community and police officers and it's dating back 40 years and further oh for sure it's fascinating to consider because like, I mean, here in Toronto, we had an active serial killer in the queer community. There was a man who was preying on other And what men. a story that was. Holy fucking shit, that story still freaks me out. My God. Yeah, it's insane. And it went on for several years. And members of the queer community actively tried to tell police that something was happening. And they were outright mm-hmm. dismissed. They were not believed. And this man was able to murder several more people as a result because the police did not take it seriously. And then, you know, the following year they turned around and they're like, so are we going to get to walk in your pride parade? Hmm. Jesus. I was like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> fuck off. We painted our cop cars rainbow. They're right here. Look, you know, it's, it's, it's always a rainbow washing. It's always a pink washing of things to make mm-hmm. it seem like everything is just okay. And I think, you know, it goes beyond, and, I, and not to get too far off the film, but you've got Friday the 13th on here. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, like thinking about the the intersectionality within the community because it's more than just a bunch of white people. Thank God, yes. it is also you know, black people and other people mm-hmm. of color, and that that in itself offends the power structure of the police in a huge way. Because the police were were created essentially number one to uh, keep slaves in order, to bust unions down, to yeah. make sure that working class people were not able to go against people who had money. And if that structure just continues to to keep itself safe, then um, you know then maybe we can keep those systems going. You know, minus slavery, I guess, uh, in some <laughs> ways. But you know, it's I think I think that's a bit of what it is too. Is that you do find a freedom within the queer community that has never meshed with what it actually means to be, you know, a quote unquote American. Queers are not Americans. Queers are queers. Mm-hmm. Americans are capitalists. And I, I would venture to say that a good queer is not. I mean, a lot of us have OnlyFans, so I would argue with you on that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's self-serving, though. <laughs> that's not doing the job for the man. That's Trace, I, I didn't know this side of you. <laughs> no, I, I, I do not have an OnlyFans. Although I have joked about it a couple times. Maybe one day it won't be a joke. Who knows? Andrew, you shut your OnlyFans down, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Or is that is that still a thing going on? <laughs> you know, I got married. Uh, <laughs> just say goodbye. Talk about selling out to the system, Andrew. Jesus. I was, I was joking the other week that during this fucking quarantine, my OnlyFans would just be me looking at the camera, crying, and eating olives. And that's it. Oh, there, there's a subset for that. I think that's somebody's kink. Well, thank God I'm going to make some money. I have gained <laughs> a full 11 pounds since this, uh, this quarantine uh, because I just don't, I don't do anything. <laughs> so Trace, you got to get you got to get back on that workout regimen. I thought you were going to do that ring fit. Yeah, yeah, I did. But then, but then, like my couch and like watching shows is also like right there. Fair. So I know. Fair. I know. Let your body be your body during quarantine. I think when we're able to go back to work, I think it's going to be easier for me to be motivated to like do something like that. But like just oh, being yeah, home absolutely. all day, okay, I don't want to believe the point. But yeah, being home all day is making me not want to work out. Yeah. Amen. And I joke about like, oh, get back on that workout regimen. But it's like, you know what? Also, don't. If your body is like, you know what? I want to drink this bottle of wine today. Sure. That's what I did last night. I'm not condoning alcoholism. So it's like, listen to... What if it wants to drink two bottles of wine? Is that okay? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to and Landers any situation. Okay, but wait. Listen to what you need to do to get yourself through the day. Raising yeah. of your virtual hands with an uh, yay or an A, who among us has drank two bottles of wine in one night before? Oh, oh God! Yay! Yeah, yay! many times. Alone. Yay! <laughs> many, many, many times. Have you heard of the box of wine, oh, which God, is four bottles? Oh, <laughs> Welcome back to Pride Month. <laughs> I might cut this out because it's like not relevant. But did you ever watch Cougar Town? I did yes. not. No, I did not. Oh, it's really good. Well, anyway, so it's on Prime. The local grocery store here in Texas is called HEB, and they had like a in-store brand of wine that was the cul-de-sac brand and oh my god in cougar town it's the the, the, they're the cul-de-sac crew but it was 297 per bottle oh god (laughs) oh god Mm. oh that's not right i would drink two bottles of that and i all the time like when cougar town was on (laughs) back in college we had a liquor store across the street from us that would sell four for 12 oh Oh, wow (laughs) mama oh mama no if you're going to drink, at least do your body right by drinking something worth drinking. Well, now I do, because cul-de-sacs give me, give me hangovers now. Yeah, yeah, well, welcome to your 30s. Yeah, exactly. 
Does this vodka crystal light count that I'm drinking right now? <laughs> Girl, what's the calorie count? <laughs> okay, so let's come back to the movie. Yes. Where are we? Where are we in this film? Uh, okay, so this is the point where Carlson tracks down Julie to ask her if she and Billy are making it. That's where I'm like, hello, 1981. Mm-hmm. I love it. Making it. Are we making it as a couple? The phrase make love is used a lot, and that term yeah. is also disgusting. Yeah, let's just get back to fucking, shall we? <laughs> so she refuses to answer. And this is when I was like, okay, Julie, you know what, girl? I like you a little bit more. Because if a cop came up to me and started questioning me, I'm probably just going to do what they say. And instead, she's like, you're disgusting. Get out of my no, face. No, she, she's she's a bitch to him in like the best Big way time. possible. And she's so supportive of Billy. Like she she mm-hmm. never wavers from him. And that's also yeah. why I really like that character, too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting because <laughs> listeners of our show know that me and Maddie are kind of on the complete opposite spectrum of like this. Because I'm terrified of rules. I'm terrified of authority. And like Maddie's like the one that will just be like, I will spit in your face if you ask me one more question. <laughs> oh my God, no, no. I, I no. am a type A rule follower. The mere thought of breaking a rule like freaks me out. Like I get anxiety thinking about it. Absolutely. I heard somebody tell me a story about how they talked back to a border crossing agent <gasps> once. And I was just like, I think I want to vomit because I'm so anxious right now. Oh, I, I thrive in chaos. I love it. <laughs> just give you some whiskey and you're off Seriously. to the races. I am ready for it. There we go. Okay. Damn the man. Uh, So amusingly enough, after she tells Carlson to more or less fuck off or asking her invasive personal questions, then she promptly goes and does just what he's asking. So she and Billy try to make it that night, except, of course, that they're discovered by Aunt Cheryl, who calls Julie a slut for the first of many times. You get dressed and get that slut out of here. (laughs) Can we talk about how the film frames her? It gives her the slasher movie point of view shot as she's like Mm. wandering up and around the house though did you guys notice that i did not it's like a hundred percent friday the 13th halloween like yeah the camera in cheryl's (laughs) you're just like oh our so cheryl is a slasher movie villain okay well that's the thing right it's um asher's tv sensibility coupled with what he has seen from the few slashers that have been released already Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting juxtaposition of styles well and to build off of that it the ant character if you would have given pamela Voorhees a full movie this is that movie yes oh my god yes (laughs) that is amazing and i kind of love it this is literally a year later Yeah, so Julie is booted out of the house, and this is where she runs into Sergeant Cook, who is played by Britt Leach, and he's actually trying to investigate. He's trying to dig up dirt, and he's wearing a fantastic bandana that immediately was like, oh, is he a secret queer in this? Is Mm. there a hanky code? But we never get any more details about it. Well, I think in later he sports a very fine um, Kentucky Fried Chicken tie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Joe, I'm so glad that you made me watch Killer Condom, because without that, I never would have known what a hanky code was. That is a public service for queer history right there. Oh, yeah. I did not know. In, in that movie, like someone, he, basically a cop plays a prank on another cop and sends him, sends him to a gay bar with a yellow hanky in his pocket. Uh-huh. And I did not understand anything, because he came back and he was so pissed. I was like, what happened? Oh, he got peed Literally on. so pissed. <laughs> well, yeah. have you ever seen, have you never seen um, Cruising? No, 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 but um, that's Wait, a state Wait, Trace, tuned. you haven't seen it? Oh my god, okay. Okay, sorry. 
Not to gatekeep. I'm just, I was 100% certain you would have seen it by now. Are you just fucking with me? No. You know this about me. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, no, I've never seen it. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll get all of your club culture yeah. leather bar rules in that movie. <laughs> well, good to know. We, we've had a lot of requests for that one. Yes, stay tuned. Let's see, where are we? Oh, so Sergeant Cook reports back to Carlson. So mm-hmm. this is where we start to get the tete-a-tete where Sergeant Cook is investigating and Carlson has already figured out how everything went down and he wants to hear nothing <laughs> from anyone else. So this is the scene where Sergeant Cook comes in and he finds Carlson literally shoving a gun in a man's face in the floor of his office. Mm-hmm. And Carlson tells him that... Billy grew up without a father and only women around, and those are signs. It's a classic case of gay. Yeah. I mean, that that's basically what happened with me. My dad was on the road, and I was raised by my mom and sister, hence gay. Oh my god, my dad was traveling all the time for work, so I was raised by my mom. Oh my god, it's true! <laughs> fathers, stay home with your oh sons, lest they be gay. I had four, I had four stepfathers. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't have a stable man in your life. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now you spend the rest of your life looking for stable men. It's true. Daddy issues right there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. I just love the Freudian analyses that come with like, oh, so why are you gay? I'm like, yeah, because I am. Why are you straight? Yeah, exactly. Why are you so straight right now? <laughs> well, and you know, it's, it's something that, you know, some of your listeners might not have a full understanding of, too, is if you really look at 1981... It was only eight years before that, in 73, that the APA removed homosexuality from right. the DSM. Yeah. Yep. And it was only, what, when did, when, was, when did sodomy laws begin to really begin? Um, so it wasn't, I mean, if you think about this too, it wasn't until 2003 that the final sodomy law was finally repealed. Yeah. And right before 1962, so like, what, just 19 years before, consensual same-sex acts were, were punishable by law. So I mean, the environment that you're that we're all finding ourselves in here is one where, like, that's actually what people still did believe, right? Yeah. And Carlson and Aunt Cheryl would have been from that generation, without right? a doubt, for sure, absolutely. And and Billy would have been, you know, a young gay person if he, if indeed that's that's how he turns out to identify, mm-hmm. who maybe believed that himself too. I think one of the most fascinating things about this film is just that Billy is a cipher for what you want him to be or what you believe him to be Mm -hmm. the brilliance of this performance is that he's not actually telling you one way or another like there's not a lot of chemistry between him and julie but it's not like he's also making moves on the coach either yeah Yeah. okay so speaking of poor billy he's just trying to get in the shower because it's the day of the big game (laughs) so of course aunt cheryl wants to bust right in and have a conversation with him this scene, I think, was the most uncomfortable scene in the film for me. This is the milk scene, right? No, so this is when he's, like, literally nude getting in the shower, and she just, yeah. like, busts in on him. Mm. He puts a towel around his waist so that they can have a conversation. After this, this is when she doses him with milk. <laughs> I'm surprised that she didn't just pop a titty out and just put it in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, people have compared this movie to The Baby, which apparently oh. is similar in its grossness and uh-huh. stuff. Have you never seen The Baby? <laughs> I have not seen The Baby. Apparently it's on Shudder. I could watch it right now. That is um, that is uh, from one of my marathons with my friends. Um, that was one of the... Mo- oh, we did a weirdo marathon of just weird movies. And that was what one of my friends brought was his Blu-ray of The Baby. <laughs> wow. See, and you could have had this if you had the Blu-ray of it. I know. 
It would have been perfect. It's okay. One day. <laughs> so, yeah. So she doses him with something. We don't actually even know what. We just know that she has put something in the milk. And then she sends him off to the big game where the scout from the University of Denver is going to be looking. And he does not perform well as a result. So he misses a bunch of three-point shots. And then he runs into a wall. Yes, I have not seen better basketball skills than Slumber Party Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I do love a good sports theme in my slasher film, though. You're kidding, right? (laughs) I'm just thinking of all the times that we've seen terrible sports, either montages or sequences in all these different films, and you're like, none of this makes me want to revisit high school sports. No. Yeah, I can't remember what movie it is, but there is a movie that deals with, like, track and field, and that the killer turns out to be a trans. Do you guys familiar with that? No. It's a problematic 80s movie that is really problematic for the trans community. <laughs> so I think it's been kind of shunned. It's all about these Olympians training for the Olympics. Huh. Okay. I'll have to look it up and let it, let you guys know. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> now I'm intrigued and also perturbed. The next day, after he has injured himself, Billy is recuperating at home. And this is when he starts to dig into Aunt Cheryl's uh, personal belongings a little bit. So he starts to find notes written from Chuck in her, I don't know, what do we call this? Like a... I, I wrote secret box in my notes. More or less. <laughs> her sex box. Her box. Her box <laughs> He box. checks her box and finds secrets. I've never understood the the calling of vagina a box. I don't understand that at all. Yeah. I mean, it's not even box-shaped. I know! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least I think. I don't know. I've only seen one in real life. I guess two. But I was a baby when that was. Right. I was going to say on the way out. Yeah. So like, yeah. but but I saw another one, and it, as I remember, it did not, it did not look like a box. I saw another one. <laughs> I did. I think I was. I mean, this might be reaching, but when you like fold the top of a cardboard box, like the oh. way you're supposed to. Oh, with the lids. Like, oh. Is that what it looks like on the top when you? Um, is that what it looks like? So I mean, that's a slit. So the labia is Jeez. supposed to be like the the box lid that you're like closing over it listen this like i said i'm reaching <laughs> there is definitely a woman listening right now who is saying it. there oh, are four we have gay guys so many women trying to talk about a vagina and i'm gonna kill every one of them and you know what your sentiment is correct we are yeah we, we deserve every bit of hate coming out of your mouth right now i will i will study the vagina that is my sound bite for you i will study the vagina <laughs> I mean, we make it part of our mission statement to offend people. Just like <laughs> three weeks ago, Trace basically said, I don't think lesbians actually scissor. Do they scissor? That seems like something oh made up. God. And I was just like, oh, God, maybe you just shouldn't. No, that's <laughs> not a thing lesbians do. Oh, my God, you don't speak for lesbians. <laughs> Shut up. I've talked to a lesbian before. I spoke to one lesbian. Oh my god! She was like, "Oh, scissoring's not a thing." I've talked. I've talked to a lesbian before. (laughs) Many lesbians, many times. Oh, sweet Jesus! Forgive us, people. Forgive us. Oh dear. I'm not even. I'm 100 percent sober. I am not even drinking during this recording. But also check your Amazon boxes and like when it closes. (laughs) No. Yes. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Wow. Yeah. So let's go back to the precinct. Uh, This is where Sergeant Cook once again tries to fill Carlson in. He's like, hey, so this Chuck guy that Aunt Cheryl used to date, he disappeared mysteriously. And Carlson's like, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's the fags. That's all it is. Basically, he's like, I had this wrapped up on the first day. Why do you keep coming into my office? <laughs> you say he touched your booby. Yeah. <laughs> Was it the fag who touched your booby? I don't care about your evidence. They suck dick. That's what That's what I know. They suck dick. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish it would have been a running theme in the in the movie that every time he came to him to be like, well, this and this happened. I disagree. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, I flat out deny that. And you're like, no, what? What? You're hy- I reject your hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is the time in the film where Aunt Cheryl gives herself a homemade haircut. <laughs> and folks, yeah. she looks great. Hey, you know, quarantine. Quarantine, baby. I feel like all of us just related so much to this moment where it was like, oh, yeah, giving yourself a haircut is difficult. Did you know that that was her real hair? Everything before that was a wig. I only knew it because I read that on the Wikipedia page. Okay, I know that I read the Wikipedia a lot, Joe. You have to point it out. (laughs) I mean, here's the thing. The haircut probably looks fine. It's just that it looks like she has permanently walked through a steam room. So she just looks hot and kind of frizzled for the rest of the film Mm -hmm. after this it's not a great look on miss tyrell and from this point on the movie like doesn't stop i mean obviously it doesn't stop but you know (laughs) yeah it it, 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 it literally keeps going until the 93 minute mark yeah yeah so this is where we discover bitch has got chuck's skeletal remains in the basement and his head in a giant jar of formaldehyde just oh okay and she's had that for at least 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> because he's also Billy's father. Well, we're not there yet. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Yes. I swore that. <laughs> Continue. I just love the, like, we never learn anything about this Chuck guy, except for the fact that they dated and we see a headshot. But I love the idea that she was able to murder this guy, decapitate him, and no one ever came looking. Yeah. <laughs> like, what kind of asshole must Chuck have been for no one to care that he died? Either that or they had the same police force. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they probably thought he was gay. Right. <laughs> well, fags are just constantly disappearing around here, you know. <laughs> oh, God. I apologize. I'm sorry. This is when Billy decides he needs some answers. He's convinced that Aunt Cheryl is lying, so he sends his girlfriend in to distract his aunt <laughs> while he investigates the upstairs. And all that ends up happening, he literally turns up nothing at this point. But poor fucking Julie ends up on the receiving end of the meat tenderizer. And so this is is point number one where you're like, okay, well, Julie's dead. There will be (laughs) another time where you will say that statement later on in this film. It's funny, though, because when she does hit her over the head with a mallet, it is basically no sound effect. (laughs) It's a completely silent hit. Yeah. I like the staging of this, though. So you see Aunt C working with this meat tenderizer, and you're like, okay, well, I've seen a slasher movie before, so I know where this is going to go. And then it just drags out and drags out. And then Julie's like, <laughs> I'm just going to look in the fridge. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a clever way of staging it if you don't have a high budget and you can't do a head effect. I thought that was really cool, though. It was, I, 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 was, I was like, good for you, movie. Mm-hmm. So then Billy ends up coming in and Margie, the nosy neighbor, is also present. And we just get this fantastic scene of Aunt Cheryl noticing that there's a giant blood splatter on the fridge door as she's filling out Billy's drugged milk. (laughs) And she just like wipes it down. And I'm like, girl, now your scarf is covered in blood. (laughs) 
what are you doing? And can we just say that this is like the nosiest nosy neighbor ever? Oh, I love Margie. <laughs> I found the umbrella now. I'm leaving. Well, okay, but you know I'm what that's that from? You know what that's from? That's from Bewitched because they also had a nosy neighbor. And I swear to God, oh, it was good point. It was like the yeah Abner. Is that what it is? It's Abner, right? Uh, nope, no Bewitched fans. Uh, okay, I can't. No. I just can't remember. It's been so yeah. long. But but yeah, there's because it's the the female neighbor that keep, the old woman who keeps seeing Samantha like do all the witchy yeah, stuff. But yeah. then like it's like, she's like the frog from Looney Tunes where like no one else sees it. <laughs> <laughs> or the pokeroo. Yeah, yeah. Nobody gets that. That's a Canadian thing. No, okay. no, no. I just said yeah because I was like I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's the polka dot door. Anyway. Oh. Okay, so, yes, so Billy is incapacitated, and Margie is kind of hanging around, but she's pretended that she's left. So, at this point, Aunt Cheryl drops the bomb. She is Billy's mother. Chuck was his father. Margie hears everything. She discovers Julie's camera and bag, and of course... Well, now she's got to go. So she wanders out into the yard, and Aunt Cheryl picks up her trusty machete. A machete! A fucking machete! <laughs> like, yeah. just one line around the house. <laughs> like, if we knew that this was going to be called Butcher, Baker, Nightmare, Maker, could it have not been just, like, the standard? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, God bless her ingenuity. Like, I see a meat tenderizer, I see a machete, I'm just surrounded by weapons of which I can use to get rid of you all these what? fuckers. If the weapon was a meat cleaver, the butcher part would have made more sense. Right? Uh, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> yeah. Or, like, use that umbrella if you're going to make it a plot point. <laughs> yeah, right? They had seen Friday the 13th, and they were like, yeah. oh, right, that's a good 100%. one. 100%. And the Miss Voorhees thing is resonating so strongly now that I'm thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, so basically Margie's done for. We leave her body in the yard. Julie, it turns out, is actually still alive. So she busts out a window. She then immediately runs into Aunt Cheryl because, of course, Cheryl is just outside having committed the murder. We get chased into the cellar. At this point, Sergeant Cook has arrived on the scene because Julie's parents have been like, "Uh, our daughter's gone missing a couple hours ago. Can you go check on her? So uh, Sergeant Cook becomes the latest in the string of murders. He gets his hand chopped off, and then he gets sort of not quite decapitated, but his throat is slit with the yeah. machete. I did like this death scene, though, actually. Because at first I was like, wait, what just happened? Because like, the hand goes off. But overall, I, li- I-, I like the execution of this. I think it's well staged because it all involves like the light fixture in this cellar, right? Oh, I've got a cool shot coming up in a minute that I thought was really impressive. Okay. It just kind of made me feel bad because he's like the guy that's trying to like oh, yeah. <laughs> really solve yeah. the murder. Yeah. But... I mean, Margie, you're like, well, she's she's nosy. She shouldn't have poked her nose into her neighbor's business, and this is kind of what she got. Whereas Sergeant Cook is like, I just want to like help this poor kid. <laughs> well, this movie's either right? anti-police, good or bad, or it's just anti-snooping because anyone who <laughs> snoops dies in this movie. I mean, a slasher film, you should never snoop. It's basically yeah. a, a I mean, death. except for Billy, obviously. Like, he snoops and he's fine. Right, yeah. And our indestructible <laughs> Julie. Jesus right, Christ. but she's not the one that's actually snooping. She's distracting. That's okay. She's just in the wrong place at the wrong time this whole fucking movie. <laughs> she's she should have gone and got dick. with Eddie, basically. Yeah. Um, okay, so she manages to escape Aunt Cheryl. She makes a dash for it through the woods behind the house. And then we get such, <laughs> such, such a long fight sequence between her and Cheryl in this pond in the middle of a storm and then Aunt Cheryl ends up smacking her in the head with a rock and you're like okay Julie's dead a second time 
but she ate. Oh my god, it was so long. I wrote, so oh, it's long. storming now. And, like, the claps of thunder happen at always, like, the exact right moments when it should, like, underline suspense. Yes. <laughs> this scene is amazing. It is. I was, like, in love with yeah. it. It goes on for so long, but it's so good. Very, very, very Cape Fear in a river. Yes. yes. Well, Cape you know, Fear, for yeah. something like this, they have to choreograph it, but this looked so messy mm-hmm. that i was like i wonder if asher just said can y'all fight in the pond for a bit and we'll just use what we can <laughs> yeah like just just give it your all in the pond <laughs> make it make it larger than life just go for it yeah i would have believed if i had a, seen a report that julia duffy was like oh yeah she almost murdered me i almost got drowned <laughs> like i could believe it yeah uh, okay so we're heading into our climax so julie has seemingly been done for Aunt Cheryl goes back into the house, and this is when she finds that Billy is trying to make a phone call. So she begins strangling him with the phone cord. Wait, but this shot. So basically, he's on the phone. She's behind the table the entire time, and her mm-hmm. hand is in the upper left corner of the frame on the phone, waiting to hang up. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just framed so well, because the whole time, because he's on the phone trying to do stuff, he's like, like collecting himself. And her hand is there the entire fucking time. And you're just, like, waiting for the ball, the, the other shoe to drop. Yeah. Love it. I mean, the movie, it's hard to say. It doesn't look great in the version that we all watched. But I actually think it's shot well. Like, it feels suffocating a lot of the time. Like, so much time is spent yeah. in this house. And the walls feel small. And there's a lot of attention to detail in terms of making the house feel real. I don't know if they shot like in a house or on a soundstage, but I would not be surprised to learn this was somebody's house because it feels tiny. But like these scenes feel so lived in. Mm-hmm. And particularly this where you're like, okay, so we're at this climax. Billy's either going to get it or not. We're pretty sure he's going to be fine. But I love that she is literally killing him with a weapon of domesticity, like a basic phone. She's just going to strangle him with it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. So he ends up stabbing her in the chest with a letter opener. And as she dies, she kisses him full on the mouth. You <sighs> shocked? <laughs> I mean, you know, I could say that the incest is subtext in this film. No. But, <laughs> 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 but I don't think I could say it with a straight face. Right. Okay. <laughs> I may have gasped. At this part, I was mm-hmm. legitimately like, oh, shit. Okay. Because you're right. It's not subtext by any stretch of the imagination. Like, we know, I think, Edry, you said, like, from the very first scene when she wakes him up and you're like, okay, yeah, sex. I think the thing that made me gasp was that there was still, like, 15 minutes left of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you think that this is the climax. But guess what? It's not. And, yeah, we will reference that Sam Wyman interview again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it appears that Aunt Cheryl has died from this stab wound with the letter opener. So Billy uses the phone. He does not call 911. He calls Coach Landers. Make of this what you will. Yeah. Technically, I don't think 911 existed yet. Oh. Mm. Okay. Well, he calls his only parent figure. Yeah. The person he hypothetically trusts most. And that's where we'll get into the, you know, in the readings of what of whether we think Billy is gay or not. Because, yeah, we don't know why his instincts to go to the coach and not mm-hmm. anyone else. Yeah. 
Well, if you think about it, he only has like a certain amount of people in his life that he can trust, and the cops are not one of them. No. His aunt is gone. Yeah. His girlfriend is question mark dead. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, who else are you gonna call? Ghostbusters? Like, <laughs> they I do love that yet. he doesn't even try to go searching for her. I mean, it makes more sense for him to say, "I'm at the phone. I'm gonna try to call for help." But you're also like, "Do you know where your girlfriend is? Uh-huh. <laughs> She's been hit on the head several times. <laughs> <laughs> She's in danger." But. Mm. So at this point, of course, we get our return of the repressed. So Antril is not dead, and she attacks him once again. He ends up impaling her on a very nicely phallic fire poker. And she ends up kind of falling into his arms. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sweet. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so now the movie's done. Nope. Actually, no, there's more. (laughs) So at this point, Carlson arrives on the crime scene. We've got bodies in the woods. And we discover that Coach Landers is already on the scene and he's caring for a bloodied Billy. So Carlson ignores Julie, who is still alive. And saying it wasn't him. (laughs) Yeah, she literally says... There is a body in the basement with a decapitated head. And Carlson is like, can you just get her the fuck out of here? And he pulls his gun on Mm -hmm. Coach and Billy. Because he is so fucking convinced that they have murdered this woman because they are gay. Mm. I mean, fair. Like, they did kill this woman. I'm not sure about that. I I think that he just hates them. And and, and I think he sees an opportunity to just kill a couple of fags. Well, I mean, either way, neither one is good. Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Six, six or a half dozen. Right. It, yes. Yes. He's not interested in sussing out the truth of the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's already got his gun out. And he's 100% going to shoot somebody. It's not like, put your hands in the air, I'm taking you in. It's like, I'm going to shoot you. So they end up having to battle him. So the coach tries to knock the gun out of his hand, and then he gets, like, wailed on. Billy ends up grabbing the gun, and Carlson goads him. He's like... You're not going to shoot me. Put the gun down. And Billy just shoots him three fucking times. And uh, it's cathartic. It is. I was like, yeah, shoot him a couple more times. It's delightful. And that's kind of the end, right? Like, I mean, oh, well. Well, I mean, Julie comes back and she comforts Billy and he cries. And then we get this epilogue that reveals that they went away to college. And also that he was found innocent of Carlson's murder due to temporary insanity. When there was a fucking scroll... Uh huh. That ended the film. <laughs> I haven't seen that in a slasher movie. That was <laughs> that was unnecessary. Bless them. I kind of loved it though. It reminded me of like I don't know those yeah, old movies where course. it was like we really need to wrap it up and let you know what happened to each character. Director's note: Here's what happens. <laughs> I mean, I was glad we didn't get some kind of courtroom scene. Thank God. Well, because because well, I, I feel like a normal movie. I mean, it was Joe. Even going back to Hollow Man, you know, it just fucking ends because it's like, oh, the movie can't right. get out of there fast enough. But yeah. like, had it ended just with them, like, like you know, Julie and Billy cradling each other, and like the coach overlooking them, you're kind of like, oh, that sucks. I agree. I think the scroll is really dumb. But that being said, I do like knowing that he and Julie ended up going to the University of Denver together, and that they're happy, <laughs> supposedly. It gave me, like, a very much, like, based on a true story vibe. Yes. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I felt like this was submitted to the approval of straight audiences everywhere. Like, don't worry, kids. Billy's not gay. You may have thought so. But he and Julie are making it... They're, they're making a go of it at the University of Denver. And I couldn't have cared less. The only thing I was really interested in was the fact that he was found innocent. Because... 
honestly, in a movie in 1981 where a potentially queer man shoots yep. an officer of the law in mm-hmm. cold blood, like, I was excited that he got off. But I did think it was fascinating that it was due to temporary insanity because, Maddie, as you said, homosexuality was classified as a mental illness for so long. So I love this equation of saying like, oh, if he is gay, it's like, there's your temporary insanity. Mm -hmm. It was like almost a reverse gay panic as well. Hmm. Just like a lot of interesting stuff in a really stupid scroll. Yes. And I killed the conversation. <laughs> and that was the Academy Award winning Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Congratulations, <laughs> folks. All right. So thoughts on this film, everyone. I mean, I pulled a bunch of themes from the Wikipedia. <laughs> There's malignant motherhood and how mother's milk renders Billy impotent. Mm-hmm. Overbearing mothers producing gay sons, incestuous relationships. She's impaled with a phallic fire poker, which yeah. also leads me to, oh, in this case, heterosexual desire is oppressive and sinister, whereas the mm. homosexuals are good. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting to think about. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like that too. If you want to put the D in the P, that's the illness. That's the sickness. That's the thing, though. I mean, other than the Billy and Julie stuff, the heterosexual desire in this film is deviant behavior because it's incestuous. Because hmm. really, there's there are no other romantic angles. Like that's why I think it's kind of fascinating hmm. that Eddie just pieces out halfway through the film. Because it would have been easy to have brought him back as a foil or as like a savior to rescue Julie or something like that. And the film has no time for that. Well, and also it doesn't have like Julie. Because again, in a normal slasher, if you have Billy, the final girl, the boyfriend comes to rescue her, maybe, or she gets out. You know, she's the final girl like kills the killer herself. Mm-hmm. This could have had Julie come and save Billy at some point, like whenever Cheryl comes back after she's died the first time. You mean some Nightmare on Elm Street 2 action? Yes, absolutely. And yeah. that's that's where you can see the, the tracing of like, okay, well, this came out in kind of the pre-AIDS crisis versus Nightmare 2, which was right in the fucking middle of it. Because we have the female in the heterosexual relationship save the day in Nightmare 2. In this one, it is the gay man. Like, we don't have Julie come in... And stop her from killing Billy. Mm. If nothing else, she's actually completely ineffectual. She tries to save the day by saying, hey, there's a body in the basement. Don't do anything. And Carlson's like, nope. Yeah. I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I reject your hypothesis, Julie. I thought you were rejecting my hypothesis. No, no, I disagree. (laughs) Happy 4th of July, Julie. Oh, God. no. No, I will say with this one, it's very interesting that this hasn't, you know, with all the movies that we've seen you know, come to Blu-ray or be celebrated Mm -hmm. from the 80s and from, like, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, that this one hasn't really gotten the love that a lot of the other ones have done, especially because it has the Video Nasty kind of title. Those usually are the ones that people like, oh, well, I got to see this. So it's kind of interesting that it's never gotten... You know, it's gotten the one Blu-ray release, but it's I think it's like $112 or something. I, yeah. There was like, like crazy I, I, numbers. I don't see like this being a Scream Factory. Like I see this as like an Arrow or like a Vinegar Syndrome release. Oh, yeah. This has Vinegar Syndrome written all over it because it's weird as fuck and it's kind of culty classic. Where the fuck is Brad Henderson, man? Let's tag him. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not a bad movie, no. and there are a lot of bad movies from yeah. this little era. So, curious, I sorry, I can't remember which of you said it, but someone mentioned <laughs> that it would have been a different film had Anne Cheryl, like Susan Terrell, pulled back her performance. Do you think Maddie. the film would be 
better or would it just be completely different without that over the top <sighs> that's a good question I, i'm not sure not sure which because you know we'll never know of course right i think it would have been better you know, but that's also, like, me speaking as, like, a former theater person who, like, really enjoys subtle performances. Whether it's in a horror film or whether it's in, you know, porn. I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I enjoy the subtlety of somebody really exploring what it might mean to inhabit this body and, and this person. And I don't I don't think that Susan Tyrell, I don't know. I don't think she gave us a performance. I think she gave us sort of a caricature a caricature of what mm. she thought this would be and you know it is pretty clear that she was probably thinking about whatever happened to baby jane and yeah and that was in her head and you know it's fine we all we all steal things when we're artists we all you know borrow from others and and build upon it but i don't know i just think it could have been really interesting to look at you know we've all called her a tragic character during this conversation to look at what this tragic character could have done in conjunction with the other characters and you know instead of instead of just being this um this ink blot you know I think for me, though, it's because these these conversations about the queer representation, like these are heavy conversations that we're having, and like like we're delving deep into this film. Those conversations weren't being had. Back oh, then. yeah. So I think in the eyes of the makers of this film and in the critics at the time, that performance melded, like meshed well with all the other crazy shit that was going on in the film. But now that we're applying this new lens to it in 2020 queerness, I can see that, like how for you, it might it might mm-hmm. make her performance stand out like a sore thumb a little bit because it's not making a mockery of the subject matter, but it's like almost making it less serious. I'm trying to find the right word to use here, but yeah, it's a little more campy. Yeah, yeah. it's almost like used as an offset. But I just find it so fascinating that we're talking about this Gonzo go for broke performance on one side of the film, and then this really calculated fascinating representation of queerness that i'm just not seeing honestly in the 80s for the most part sure and it's so bizarre to think they're in the same film together but like even in slasher movies now we're not getting shit like this you know no like this film feels it's not the kind of film i want to watch all the time but it is so much more fascinating than i would have thought having read the description like i went into this thinking oh here's a movie that's a slasher film it's an exploitation film and it's gonna have some interesting queer representation like it's gonna have a positive queer representation that's what i saw online Mm -hmm. i didn't realize that it was going to be negotiating this subject so like in such an intricate fashion but do you think like do you think it's intentional? Not that it matters because it, we're looking at it now. But do you think there was any kind of like foresight to that with the writers or the director of this film? I don't know. I have to imagine the fact that all of the queer mm. characters and even the queer questioning characters live in this film. And if people go and check out Sam and Brian's conversation, the villain, the big capital V villain the final confrontation is not with Aunt Cheryl. It is with Carlson. Yeah. And that says something. Our homophobe is the big bad of this film. Yes, I'm sorry. That's where I was going to go back to Sam's article. Because, yeah, I think the, the the phrasing he used was, like, the aunt is not the final boss of this movie. It is the cop. And so, therefore, homophobia is the villain of this movie. It's not crazy incest aunt. <laughs> yeah. The true villain. She's the distraction that it would be easy to get lost in and say, oh, okay, well, she's like the crazy one because she's the one committing all the murder. Yeah, it's, it's so much of what Aunt Cheryl does, you know, from the writers ends up being too much. 
you know, the the basement stuff is, in my opinion, it's too much. The the head in the jar is too much. Yeah, it's a little too much. Like, okay, we all watch Carrie and Psycho too. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you know, we, we we could have done without that deep of a backstory into. Well, I shouldn't say it that way, but we could have dealt without. Um, I guess it could have been more Greek, right? I would have preferred it to be more off stage. I think that would have well, been better. It, it, and this is credited as a as a remake of Oedipus. And granted, I think that came right. Even in like, I think on the Wikipedia it even says like based on Oedipus. And I'm mm. like, I don't, th- I don't think they credit that in like the credits to this film. I don't think that was the I intention. Mean, it's Oedipal. Right. Oh, for sure. This is not an adaptation by right. any stretch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this isn't to Oedipus as Cruel Intentions is to Dangerous Liaisons, you know? Yeah. Not at all. No one's ripping out their eyes, you know? Yeah. And even with Psycho as well. I mean, because like, like, uh, this is coming out a year before Psycho 2, and that's also a movie that I think gets like a kind of a bad rap that has oh, a lot more so to good. say than people give it credit for. I think actually this yeah. would make a really good double feature with Psycho 2. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the last scene of Psycho 2 alone oh, kind of sells Yes, the movie. But see, so there's your over-the-topness that just comes in the very, very end, and it's not, like, spread throughout the film. But I think it works better for that film. Yeah, right? but I love it. Yeah, it does. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about comparing the two of them, I'm like, Psycho 2 is the more enjoyable watch, per se. Like, mm. um, this is a better queer film, but I think that Psycho 2 is a better film overall yeah well i was gonna say like this is a more enjoyable watch because it's so fucking insane but yeah i yeah. think psycho 2 is a better film right yeah I, I this is kind of a tangent but i actually think that the the psycho franchise doesn't really oh, get does. the love that it should oh, yeah to be honest. um no we, we did an episode on psycho 2 last year and it motivated me to finally watch psycho 3 because i've never seen it before i double featured them and that is actually not the best way to do it because if you watch <laughs> three right after two it's gonna make three not look great because it's so fucking different in tone it's very campy and mm-hmm. it's perkins behind the camera but like if you watch three by itself it actually works really well sorry that's not relevant but... <laughs> <laughs> so final thoughts on butcher baker nightmare maker aka night warning anybody got anything else they want to say I think it's well worth your time. You know, as, as we've all established over and over again, there is a well-worn VHS copy of it on YouTube. <laughs> um, and I, I truly do think it's, it's, it's worth your time. It's, 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 a, it's an hour and a half. I watched it, you know, in an afternoon. It was, it was an, an easy watch. It was interesting to watch. You know, when uh, Detective Carlson is killed, my immediate thought was, good, one less homophobe in the world was my yeah. immediate thought. And so yeah. it was... You know, Joe, like you said, cathartic, really was. And it really gives you a lot to think about. I can guarantee you, we don't know what these filmmakers were thinking, but they never fucking thought in 2020 there's going to be four gay dudes sitting around talking about it, yet here we are. So I think it has a lot that is in there. And I'm surprised that I am still, still thinking about it, even during this discussion, and I'll think about it more after. So I say see it. Yeah. 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 I don't have anything out of that. Like, you, you phrased it perfectly. Mm-hmm. I concur. <laughs> I agree with your hypothesis. I accept your <laughs> hypothesis. Unlike Carlson, we will not shut that down. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, uh, if that's all we have to say about the film, uh, then before we announce what we're covering next week, Maddie and Andrew, what would you like to plug? This is your time to promote yourselves. Andrew, you want to start it off? 
Sure. Um, yeah, we're Friday the 13th Horror Podcast. You know, much like horror queers, we, we talk about horror movies from a, a queer lens, but we also talk about the horrors of real life and how those kind of connect to some of the movies that we cover. So I don't know what we'll be covering around this time, just because it's coming out in like a month, but um, <laughs> it'll probably be something super gay. So um, hopefully if you've enjoyed this conversation, you can come along and get slayed with me and Maddie. And you can find us, of course, uh, wherever you're listening to the podcast. We are on there somewhere, somehow. Uh, find us on Twitter at at Frygay13. Find us on Instagram at Frygay13. On the web, Frygay13.com. And just, you know, search for us on Facebook. You'll find us on there. Give us a shout. Give us a listen. We'd, we'd love to, to, uh, to hear from you. Well, thank you all both so much for coming on to the show today. It's been a real treat to have you. And also, like, oh... Love the four four people is so fun to have. <laughs> yeah, I feel much less pressure to like say things. <laughs> Trace, Joe, it was a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, it was this a lot, is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group. Tweet us or Instagram us at Horror Queers. Email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have a few seconds to spare, please head over to Apple Podcasts or any reviewable area that has podcasts and leave us a review. Uh, you can buy Horror Queers merch at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com. And if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are in the middle of Creature Feature Month. Ooh. So, we have episodes on arachnophobia, mm-hmm. deep rising, yes, and an audio commentary on one of my favorite creature features, snakes on a plane. Ooh. But apparently in July, we will be getting some more substantial new releases. Maybe not in theaters, but definitely on VOD. We should be going back to our regular format mm-hmm. next month, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll I don't see. know. <laughs> uh, Joe. Yes. What are we covering next week to close out Pride Month? All right. So we have been talking a lot about gay men lately, Trace. So I think we should dip our toe into like queer lady horror. So we're going to go all the way back to the mid 90s and talk about quintessential female coming of age horror with the craft. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and Trace, you're not a huge fan, so we're going to bring somebody else who is a big fan. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I j- I'm just missed like the, the 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 age gap for this movie and so I'm one I'm one of those people that like I think it's fine. I don't quite understand why people love it so much. So maybe this uh discussion will turn me around next week. We'll see. Spoiler alert, it's the only movie I've given a perfect score to. <laughs> oh my Whoa. god. I've given a lot of perfect scores to a lot of movies, but not The Craft. Yeah, Trace just doesn't like women. (laughs) Fuck off. Okay, (laughs) on that note, I guess, we can cross out Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, a.k.a. Night Warning. (laughs) Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, the horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew, horror centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.